Well, Doug, thank you very much for that. And um, beyond the cross, we thank you for your uh, sharing with us as well. God bless you and your music ministry. You know, New Year's is a great time for uh, renewing old commitments and making new ones. I would imagine that the uh, number of memberships at the local health clubs probably skyrockets around this time of year, right? As people uh, decide that uh, they're going to get rid of their uh, Christmas uh, bulge. But uh, not to worry, Paul says bodily discipline profits little. So uh, if you don't join the club or you join and don't go, don't worry about it. Okay. You know, several uh, years ago, after uh, much study and a tremendous amount of prayer, the elders presented uh, to you, the congregation here at Foothill Bible Church, a series of five statements that by God's grace will steer and direct this ministry in the days to come. We called those statements our core values, our core values. And a core value, just to refresh your thinking, is our deepest, most constant, most passionate belief and visible commitments that drive us either as an individual or as an organization. It is those things that we believe deep down inside, those things that are non-negotiable. Now, There can be and often is a difference between what we would like to drive us and what actually does drive us. We call that our aspirational values and our actual core values. Those things that we would aspire to drive us and those things that actually do drive us. Foothill Bible Church has five aspirational core values. Five statements that, by God's grace, drive this ministry and will increasingly become, in the days, months, and years stretching before us until the Lord returns, become and have a greater and greater influence over who we are and what we're about. It is the first Sunday in January, the year 2008, and so the elders thought it would be profitable for us to be reminded of what those values really are. You'll note on the front of your bulletin, right up near the top, that our mission statement is written there, diligently pursuing Christ and courageously proclaiming Him. Foothill Bible Church exists to do just that. We exist to diligently pursue the Lord Jesus Christ and courageously Proclaim him both here in the city of Upland and throughout the world. And we seek to do that through the implementation of these five significant core values. We have included for you in your bulletin a card. You might want to pull that out and just look at that. A card that uh, lists those core values in some level of detail with scriptural support. We had it put on cardstock for you this year with the hopes that you would tuck it in the flyleaf of your Bible and that it would last uh, throughout the year. Let me just tell you that that uh, that statement, those series of statements, that card would be an excellent 
little devotional Bible study that you might try on your own sometime. Look up all those passages and to see how all of that fits together. The five core values that we have as a fellowship are that, number one, we are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, that we are determined to obey the Bible. Third, that we are dedicated to prayer. Fourth, that we are daring to minister by faith. And fifth, that we are developing disciples to reach the nations. So as we begin the new year together, let's just review at least one of those core values. We don't have time this morning to go through all five, so I've selected one that I would like to review with you. Because it is these values that drive our ministry commitments. What we do and why we do it are found in those values. The value that I want to look at with you this morning is our determination to obey the Bible. Foothill Bible Church is determined to obey the Bible. And that determination has three aspects. You might, if you're interested in jotting some notes, there's been an insert provided for you where it is all laid out for you, the three aspects of this core value. So let me just dive in with you. The first aspect is that determined to obey the Bible, Foothill Bible Church submits to biblical authority. We submit to biblical authority by rightly interpreting and boldly teaching the whole counsel of God as revealed in the Old and New Testaments. Now, that immediately launches us into a discussion of authority. Authority. What is biblical authority? And why is a determination to obey it such a radical idea in the church today? This kind of a statement, by the way, that we are determined to obey the Bible in future, prior generations would not be seen as any kind of radical statement at all. But in the church today, this is actually a very radical statement. Determined to obey the Bible. What is authority? If we are going to submit to biblical authority, we have to ask the question, what is authority? The dictionary defines the word for us as, quote, the right and power to command, enforce laws, exact obedience, determine or judge. That's what authority represents. And folks, we live in a culture that resists authority. We live in a culture in which authority is not a welcome notion. If you are looking for some vivid evidence of that, all you need do is get in your car and go out onto any one of the freeways that uh, crisscross this city. And if you uh, decide that you want to live under authority, and that is drive the speed limit, they will pretty much run you off the road. Okay, We live in a culture that has no interest in authority at all. What does the Bible claim about authority for itself? Does the Bible make authority claims for itself? It does. Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, and if you'd like to flip open there, John 12, beginning verse 47, and I'm going to flip you around in the scriptures a little bit this morning. 
John 12 and verse 47, Jesus makes an amazing statement with regard to who was in authority over him. John 12, verse 47. Jesus said, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I did not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. The Son of Man Himself, Jesus Christ, says that He was a man under authority. His authority was the Father's Word. The Apostles' authority was located in God's Word as well. Acts chapter 5, just to choose one. Acts 5 and verse 28. When confronting the religious authorities after the resurrection, who had commanded them that they were to cease preaching about Jesus Christ, the apostles responded to them as follows. Verse 28. The authority said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles were under authority of God's word. The Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament with expressions like the Holy Spirit says, Acts chapter 1, verse 16, a reference to an Old Testament passage. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 and following, where it says, God says, referring again to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament and it is called the Word of God and it is authoritative. Thirty-three times in the New Testament, the verb in the perfect tense, gagraptai, which is translated for us, it is written, and more literally would be it stands written, that is, it has been written and it continues to be written and authoritative and binding upon us, is used in a citation of the Old Testament. Jesus said to them, Matthew 21, verse 13, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The written Word of God, the Old Testament here, was authoritative for Jesus, for the apostles, for the church at large. In fact, apostolic authority is God's authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul makes an amazing statement there in verse 37. Paul says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or a spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Paul's words, he says, are God's commandment to them. They are God's authority. Fascinating thing is that is in the context, by the way, of Paul's statement that women are to be silent in the church. 
Talk about a cross-cultural, counter-cultural kind of statement. And Paul says that this is the Lord's command. Biblical authority. The Bible does claim it for itself. But how far does that authority extend? How far does the authority of the Scripture extend? What kind of claim does it make for itself? Second Peter Chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there to the right. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3. 2 Peter 1, 2 and 3. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything pertaining to life and godliness granted to us through the true knowledge of God. A knowledge, beloved, that can be received only through the Scriptures. How far does the Bible's authority extend? Peter says it extends to everything pertaining to life and godliness. One of the rallying cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, Latin for scripture alone. The idea is that it is the scripture alone that has authority in the church. It is not popes or councils that can bind men's souls. It is not our personal spiritual experience that is the governing authoritative factor in our lives. It is not private revelation. God said to me. It is not science. It is not sociology. It is not psychology. It is not pragmatism. And it is not popular opinion. It is sola scriptura. It is the scripture alone that has authority in the church of Jesus Christ and over God's people. The authority of the scripture extends broadly to all topics, including worship, counseling, evangelism, discipleship, missions, even business practices within the church. We look to the Bible as our authority. We look to the Scriptures as our unchanging source of truth. What are the necessary implications of this kind of authority? There are three of them, really. Three, what I believe are necessary implications that come as a result of this kind of authority that the Bible claims for itself and indeed has. First, since the Bible is the supreme authority in the church, it's critical that all appeals to the Bible be based upon a true and correct interpretation of the Bible. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. In other words, if you don't get it right, if you don't interpret it properly, you do not have the Word of God. And if you do not have the Word of God, you do not have God's authority. We dare not sin 
We dare not sin by usurping God's authority and using it to support our own human opinions. Therefore, it is critical that we rightly interpret the Word of God using the grammatical, historical method of interpretation. That is, we have to ask and answer questions. Questions like, what was the author's meaning when he wrote this? What did he mean when he wrote this? Who was his audience that he was writing to? Why did he write what it is that he wrote? Why not something else? Why not something more? Why did he write what he wrote? I was telling a group earlier this morning, I call it the, uh, the paper and ink question. Given that there was a finite amount of writing material available on a scroll, only certain, only so much could be written down. Why did, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, the authors of the Scripture write the things they did? Of all the things they could have written, why did they write that? You have to ask that question. You have to be able to answer it. You have to ask yourself, is the passage before me descriptive or prescriptive? Is it describing something that happened or is it telling me something I must do or not do? You have to know. You have to interpret the text according to the rules of grammar and syntax. Verb tenses matter. The arrangement of subject and verb and object all make a difference. You need to do some hard work. You need to do the work of exegesis, that is, to take out of the text its meaning, rather than eisegesis, that is, to put into the text a meaning you want to find there. Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. If you are not handling accurately the word of truth, you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed. We're to work hard at it. Second implication of the authority of the Scripture is that we must teach the whole counsel of God. We must teach the whole counsel of God and not just those passages that are the least offensive or easiest to understand. We can't Jump around within the, within the Scriptures. Hunt and peck for our, our favorite verses. You know, our, our pet verses that we want to go to and talk about. And avoid all the hard stuff. Just jump right over all those passages that are hard to understand or that confront us or our culture. Paul says to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. You can turn there if you like. Acts 20, verse 21 He's gathered them together. He's leaving them now. Verse 20, and Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look over to verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul says that my time there in Ephesus amongst the believers was characterized by a teaching ministry that covered the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink back from declaring anything to you, he says. I gave you the whole deal. The tough passages and the easy passages. I gave it all to you. The third implication of the authority of the Scripture in our life is that we must teach the Scripture with boldness. We must teach it with boldness. If it is indeed the authority over the people of God, then it must be taught with a boldness that coincides with that authority. And we must declare that authority regardless of the popularity of the message. To preach the Word of God is not a popularity contest. It is a declaration. It is a sacred trust and a declaration of the very words, the oracles of the living God. We're not in this to be popular. We are in this to declare the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's finishing his ministry in 2 Timothy. He is soon to go before the Roman executioner's axe and to lose his head. This is his last will and testament, as it were. He is writing to young Timothy and he is giving him final instructions because Paul's not going to be around much longer to continue to disciple this man. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 4, he says, Timothy, I solemnly charge you, solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's a heavy duty charge he's laying on him. He says, preach the word, Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. That is all the time, Timothy, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Can't help but think of the great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who faithfully pastored a church for 23 years, laboring among the people, pouring himself out among them. And then they unceremoniously fired the man after 23 years because he confronted them over an issue of doctrine in which they were allowing unbelievers to come to the communion table. They kicked him out. They fired him. They threw him out on his ear. Because the man would not budge when it came to the Word of God. Be ready in season, Timothy, and out of season. Because the time will come when the church doesn't want to hear the truth. This leads me to what I call an elder's commitment. An elder's commitment. It begins with me. I commit to you and recommit to you 
that I will continue to do the hard work of exegesis week by week. That I will keep my fanny in the chair for as many hours as it takes week by week to do the hard work in order to accurately handle the word of truth. I will not come to you with a half-baked sermon. Furthermore, we as elders will make every effort possible to humble ourselves before the Word of God and to let it inform, guide, and direct our decision-making in this fellowship. That is our commitment to you. By God's grace, we will keep it. Determined to obey the Bible, Foothill Bible Church submits to biblical authority. Secondly, determined to obey the Bible, Foothill Bible Church builds up the body of Christ by means of edifying ministry, employing the precepts, principles, and patterns of Scripture to guide our ministries and direct our stewardship. We are not going to model this church after any other church, except to the extent that another church is following the Word of God. How's that? Okay, we're not going to play me too. If another church is following the Word of God and they have a good idea, we're more than willing to adopt that good idea. But we are not looking around our community and around our country at another church and say we want to be modeled just like them. Through the years... People have come to the elders and they've asked us why we don't participate in such and such latest trend that is kind of rolling through evangelicalism. How come we don't uh, study some new book on purpose or why don't we adopt some new evangelistic strategy? All around us, pastors and churches seem to be jumping on the latest bandwagon. They seem to be going from one fad to the next, one trend to the next, chasing after numbers. Beloved, numbers are not a reliable indicator of the work of the Holy Spirit of God within a church. Numbers are not a reliable indicator. Beyond that, pragmatism is a poor substitute for principle. A poor substitute for principle. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Therefore, we are determined to go to the scriptures and do the hard work necessary to determine what are the transcultural precepts, patterns and principles of church growth. We are not opposed to the numerical growth of this church. If God were to choose to do such a thing, all praise and glory to him. But we are not out to fill up the pews. That is not what drives us. We will seek to implement biblical, transcultural precepts, patterns, and principles, even if they go against the flow of the tide of evangelicalism all around us. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You want to know how God wants the church 
to operate, you go to the Word of God. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I've written it down for you. Go there and dig it out. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you will find out what the Bible has to say about the qualifications of elders and deacons. Go to Titus chapter 1, where he lays out the, the mandate with regard to the qualifications of elders within the church. These are not negotiable. It is not best 8 out of 10. These are God's requirements for a man's character and giftedness. And if a man does not possess these things, he is not suited to give leadership of the church of God. It is not our church, and we are not able to willy-nilly set these things aside. Beyond that, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 16, that it is the Scriptures are the means by which people are matured in their faith. Paul says, Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Therefore, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, preach His Word, Timothy. All you have is the Word of God, Timothy. And that's all you need. Elders' commitment. Are you ready? Elders' commitment. Since the Scriptures are God's means to mature people in Christ, and it is God's means through the Scriptures to guide and direct the ministries of the local church, it is the means of maturing His people, it is the means of guiding and directing the local church. Therefore, we as elders are committed to you to make serious Bible teaching a cornerstone of this ministry, we will not negotiate that. We will teach the Word of God in season and out of season. And that takes us to our third. Our third aspect. Determined to obey the Bible, we exhort one another Toward sanctifying obedience. Sanctifying obedience. Encouraging fidelity to biblical commands and humility in personal preferences. Fidelity to biblical commands and humility to personal preferences. That is, that if it is a command of God, we will obey it. If it is a matter of personal preference, we will exercise humility one before another. Sanctification, the maturing in Christ, the becoming more like Jesus Christ, comes as a result of understanding and obeying the Word of God. It's just that simple. It is just that simple. Second Thessalonians, turn back to the left. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Here it is by the spirit and faith in the truth. By the spirit and faith in the truth, the spirit of God 
uses the word of God to sanctify the people of God. That's how it works. The spirit of God who dwells within you, if you are Christ this morning, will conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, that which he has promised in Romans 8. And he will do it by the application of his word to your life. That's how it's done. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Blessed are those that hear the word of God and observe it or keep it. You want to be blessed of God? Listen to his word and then be not just a hearer of the word, but what? A doer of the word. And you will be blessed of God. It is this fundamental truth. That stood underneath as a bedrock principle, Paul's lifetime ministry, his lifetime ministry. He dedicated himself and his life to faithfully teaching and admonishing believers to live like Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter one, back to the left, Colossians one. Paul is summarizing his ministry here. Colossians 1.28. Paul says, and we proclaim him. Admonishing every man, by the way, a nuthateo in the Greek, from which you get nuthetic counseling, okay? We admonish every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. You see it? His ministry was one of admonishment and teaching so that he might present every man complete in Christ. When we admonish, we put into the mind of someone something that's not there or we remind them of something they already know. We admonish them. You admonish your children, right? When they do something they shouldn't do, you admonish them. That is, that you remind them that they're not supposed to do that. Sometimes you do it gently. After the 50th time of them doing the same thing, you admonish them a little more strongly. Okay? But you admonish. So it's an admonishing ministry. It's also a teaching ministry. That is, you, you show them the truth of the Word of God, why it is they should do what they are supposed to do or not do what it is they're doing. Is that an easy thing to do? Verse 29, Paul says, And for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Agonizomai, actually, in the Greek, it is agony. It is agony. It is an agonizing ministry to admonish and teach the people of God. And the reason it is, is because we are very hard-hearted people. We are very hard-hearted people. We do not like to be corrected. We do not like to have somebody confront us with the truth. Somebody point out to us a weakness in our character or a place where we are deviating from the Word of God, somewhere where we fall short. We don't like it. We don't like it at all. And so we push back. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews, over in Hebrews chapter 13, speaking there to the church, Addresses this thing, this very same issue. Hebrews 13, verse 17. The writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. 
Okay. Paul says that the ministry of admonishment and teaching can be a ministry full of agony, a ministry with its share of grief. But it doesn't matter. The responsibility is the responsibility. According to Ephesians chapter four, go ahead and turn there. Turn left, Ephesians four. Paul gave this same pattern of teaching and admonishing to the pastor teacher right up until the present time. Paul says his life is characterized by a ministry of admonishment and teaching. And he has said that the pastor teacher's role within the people of God, within the fellowship, is that of admonishing and teaching. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he that is God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. The pattern in the church today is to teach the word of God in order to mature the people of God, in order that they will no longer be tossed to and fro by the latest innovation that comes down the pike. We live in a world of the Internet a world of instant communication. My son tells me I'm a fossil because I still use email. I thought I was pretty with it to be able to use email. What I should be doing is instant messaging, and then I would be a little closer to the cutting edge. Sorry. Emails as far as I've gotten so far. I even got a new cell phone, and it frustrated the daylights out of me for three days because I couldn't figure out how to answer the thing. Put it to my ear and there's nobody there. It's terrible. But you know, because we live in this world of instant communication, things just, they tear through the church. Some idea somewhere, it starts and boy, before you know long, it hits the internet and it goes all over the place and it rips through the church like a tsunami. And then along comes the next one. And the fads are coming faster and faster and faster. Paul says that we need a, a ministry of teaching so that we will come to maturity together in Christ. Now, there is a danger here. There is a danger that attends to a church that focuses on obedience to the Bible. There is an inherent danger in this. And that inherent danger is that a church can slip over into legalism and a censorious spirit in a mixed their desire to submit to the Word of God. You can go over the edge. There's a, there's a ditch on two sides of the road. One is in which the Scripture has no real relevance in the church at all. That is, the church is a man-made creation and we kind of do it the way we want to. That's one ditch. The other ditch on the other side is this ditch of legalism in which human preference and opinion is baptized and, and uh, thought to be God's commandment to us and it now becomes a place in which we, we judge one another based on how they live up to our standards, not God's. So if we're going to 
live with the biblical authority that the Bible requires, then by necessity we have to know what is biblical, what is a biblical command and what isn't. You have to know the answer to that question. What is a biblical command and what is not a biblical command? We have to be on guard against assuming that our personal preferences or our convictions are somehow God's commands and are therefore binding on everybody else. That takes maturity. That takes biblical wisdom. That takes a huge dose of humility. A tremendous supply of humility. A good rule of thumb in this area, if you're not sure about something, is to ask yourself a few questions. Ask yourself questions like this. Can I point to a specific biblical command or a clear inference from a passage to support my view that something is a command rather than my own personal preference? Can I find a command in the Bible that commands it of all people? Is there a, is there a clear inference from some command that then makes it apply to all people? Another question to ask yourself. Is there any other scripture passage or passages that speak contrary to that which I think is a command? Is there somewhere else in the Bible that speaks in the opposite to what I think is a biblical command? Or another question to ask yourself. Is there any dispensational change that has occurred from the Old Testament to the New Testament that would negate or amend an Old Testament command? Has something changed? By the way, we know the answer to that is yes, because you don't have parapets around your roofs, and most of you are in here wearing mixed fabric, okay? So you're persuaded something's changed. Another question. Is the Bible, and this is a big one, is the Bible merely reporting something that happened or something that was said by someone without giving God's commentary as to its validity? Is the Bible merely reporting an observation of something that happened, or is it merely reporting to you what someone once said without giving God's commentary on that? For example, Gideon. Gideon fleeced God. Or at least people today seek to fleece God by following Gideon's advice or, or his pattern, rather. You remember Gideon. He put out the fleece and said, well, you know, if you want me to do this, it's got to be wet and everything else is dry. Then it's got to be dry and everything else is wet. That is not how we go about biblical decision making. We don't throw out fleeces. OK, the Bible is only reporting what Gideon did. By the way, Gideon was not a man of great faith. We know he was not a man of great faith because when God selected him for his mission, Gideon was at the bottom of a wine press threshing the wheat. Okay? And if you don't know anything about threshing wheat, you might not understand the, the, uh, really the laughable nature of all of that. Okay? But you thresh wheat by throwing it up in the air and letting the wind blow off the chaff and the heavier grain falls to the ground. A wine press is a hole in the ground. So here's Gideon throwing the wheat up and it's all falling back down all over his head because there's no wind to blow it away. And the reason he's doing that is he's afraid the Amalekites are going to come and take away his grain. And God comes up to him and says, hail, valiant warrior, all covered in chaff. 
Is the Bible merely reporting what happened? Is God giving you his commentary on it? Last question, ask yourself, could this possibly be an area of biblical freedom whereby God allows believers to choose according to their own personal preference? Is that possible? I think if you can work through these kinds of questions, then you will have greater clarity to understand whether something is definitively a command of God that must be obeyed by all Christians at all times or not. If it's not, then it's a matter of personal preference. And then mature Christians can arrive at differing points of view. Two mature Christians can come to a different point of view on an issue that is not a command. Then what do you do? How do you resolve it? Do you flip a coin? How do you resolve such a thing? The answer for us is in Philippians chapter 2. The answer is, is that you consider the unity of the body of Christ more important to yourself than yourself or your family. And you give way before your brother. You give way. Paul says in Philippians 2, meaning in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... And there is, by the way, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not, and notice the word merely is in italics because it's not there in the original text, do not look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to talk about how Christ did not cling to his glory, but humbled himself all the way to the point of death. We are to or consider the body of Christ as more important than either us or our family. The unity of the body of Christ is huge. We're about to celebrate that unity here in just a couple of minutes. We wrap this thing up for you. Encouraging fidelity to the Scriptures and humility in personal preference is not just the job of the elders. Listen again to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. We are to speak the truth one to another in love that we might mature together to look like Christ. We have a responsibility to one another in the body to encourage, to admonish, to pray for, to model Christian maturity one with another. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for the unity of the body of Christ. I thank You for the unity that You have granted us here at Foothill. In these many years, Father, as You have united our hearts together in a singular passion for You, Your Word, and Your work in this community and throughout the world. But our Father, we know that the unity of Your church is like a very thin veneer that can be easily ruptured or pierced or slashed wide open, that lying beneath the surface of every single one of us is a cauldron of sin 
and selfishness. That every one of us has within us, Lord, the capacity to rip open the fellowship for our own personal preference or self-aggrandizement. Oh, Lord God, humble our hearts. Please, let us consider your church above ourselves and our own preferences. Please, Father, do your work within us. Make us holy and we will be holy. Help us to love the church, to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said, as his disciples love one another, the world will know that he has come. Please, Lord, as we go into this new year together, may the world know about Christ by its observation of us. We pray in his name. Amen.